You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. Please do turn in your Bibles to Psalm 44. We're going to read verses 1, 2, and 3, then verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, and then from verse 17 to the end of the psalm. So Psalm 44 and verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. And then verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You have made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us amongst the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. Verse 17 to the end of the psalm. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you. Or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us. And made us a haunt for jackals. And covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God. Or spread out our hands to a foreign God. Would not God have discovered it. Since he knows the secret of the heart. Yet. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, redeem us. Because of your unfailing love. Let's pray together. Living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we thank you again that you are a Father who loves us, a Son who has died for us, and a Holy Spirit who indwells us. We thank you again for the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We thank you that your son lived and died in history and now lives and reigns. Thank you also for your Holy Spirit, whom you've sent to our believing hearts and is that connecting link between our present living experience and the historical foundation of our faith. Thank you that our experience of Jesus Christ today verifies the facts of history. We thank you that you have acted in history and that you still act. We want to thank you too for our great Christian heritage upon this nation, from those who pioneered our civil liberties, 
our education, our health care and our democracy. Thank you, Lord God, the God of our fathers, the God of our present and the God of our future, that we can look back both at encouragement and look forward. And we resolve today to look upwards to you, to look outwards that we may engage in our culture today and to look forward to the certainty of victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit this time to you now. And we ask your blessing on Ranald as he speaks tonight. We pray that you'll speak through your word and through him to challenge us, to stimulate us, and to encourage us. And we ask all this in and through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. It's a tremendous privilege tonight to have with us Randall McCauley. Those of you who are old enough, and there are some, well, even older than me, I think, will remember that 20 years ago, Randall came with his team from Labrie to inaugurate one of the very first weekends we ever had with the Christian Institute. I don't know if any of you were there at the time. I know at least one person, so he must be at least my age, if not older. Um, we met, if you remember, at Long Benton High School, and we had a great weekend, which Randall led. And so it's a great... He's been back since on many occasions. We regard him as a great friend, not an old friend, but a friend of long standing. So it's really wonderful to have you back tonight, Ranald. We're very much looking forward to your lecture. He's also the founder of Christian Heritage, uh, based in the Round Church at Cambridge, which I would encourage you to visit if you're down there. Ranald, I always associate with Labrie and with Francis Schaeffer, who was, of course, his father-in-law, and a great influence, I think, on many of us, and on the work of the Christian Institute too. So, Randall, welcome back here. We look forward to what you have to say to us. And he tells us he encourages discussion and debate. So, unlike me, he encourages that. So, I'm in your hands, and we're in his. So, welcome, Randall. We look forward to what you have to say to us tonight. Mm. Thank you so much, John. It, uh, it goes without saying, um, from what uh, John has just mentioned to you about the, the long history that uh, I too counted a very great privilege uh, to, to be here. It's really delightful. And uh, so thank you for the invitation. Uh, the, the subject that is before us is absolutely vast. It's a wonderful subject, but it is quite vast. I mean, we already have within Christian history 2,000 years. How can one possibly deal with that? Uh, it might also be suggested that since we stand in a Judeo-Christian tradition, that is that Christianity is not understandable apart from its heritage already before Christ. He is the Messiah, after all, of the Jewish people. And so then we could include the whole of that heritage and ask ourselves, well, what is the influence of the Judeo-Christian heritage on history? And that would make an interesting study by itself. But being so vast, I, I really do hesitate. It, it, is, it, it seems pretentious, even to try, which is what I'm going to try to do, 
just to give you a sketch of this huge subject. But I'm encouraged to press on, not only because I'm convinced that this is really a vital subject for us, and it seems to me it becomes increasingly vital with each passing week, but more so because there's been a very interesting phenomenon which has occurred, and I'm sure many of you have noticed it, and it's only in the very recent past, say over the last 10 to 20 years, and I call that the wistfulness the wistfulness of many contemporary atheists. The wistfulness of many contemporary atheists about this very subject, namely the influence of Christianity upon our culture. And the examples are, are many. I just want to share with you a, a, a few. Um, I don't know if any of you noticed about a year ago a very striking article in the Times by Ben Okri, a Nigerian writer. Here it is. And uh, Ben Okri, uh, thinking of the present financial uh, crisis, um, titled this, Our False Oracles Have Failed. We Need a New Vision to Live By. But in saying we need a new vision... He actually looks back and he describes this extraordinary experience he had when he went into the oldest church in, um, in Cheltenham and he just picked up a Bible and started to read in Genesis about Joseph and the seven years of famine and the seven years of plenty. And he points out that this man had a vision and by that means saved the whole civilization. But it starts like this, we must rediscover our lost values or perish. This is not someone who is a Bible-believing Christian. Here is somebody who understands. The crisis affecting the economy is a crisis of our civilization. The values we hold dear are the very same that got us to this point. The meltdown in the economy is a harsh metaphor of the meltdown of some of our value systems. And so he goes on and one of the phrases that he uses is, is this, material success has brought us to a strange spiritual and moral bankruptcy. Now, on my tours of Cambridge, which I do, which is part of the Christian heritage work, um, we go about, and almost every time I try to find an appropriate moment, there may even be some of you who've been on these walks. Has anyone been on a walk with me? It's just a matter of interest. No. Anyway. And I make the point... Yes, there is a hand there. Oh, somebody over here. Yes. I make the point, verify this, that I use that phrase. The, um, the West is intellectually and morally bankrupt, is the phrase that I use. Now, here's somebody who, who understands that uh, very well. But there are others who see this you know, equally. And um, I don't know if you noticed um, the, the remarkable... Um, article by Matthew Paris, uh, speaking about Africa and the need of Africa. And here's somebody, clearly an atheist, and he says, I'm just putting it simply, what Africa needs is missionaries, not money. A senator, an intellectual and academic, in fact, in the Italian Senate, has written a book called Why We Must Call Ourselves Christians. And this is not a person who's a, who's a Christian, he's an atheist. The most remarkable one, though, that, that I have seen is uh, one back in 2005. Here it is, and it's by 
someone who I admire enormously, Niall Ferguson, Scottish historian. I'm sure almost all of you who've been watching his uh, programs, his documentaries, they're all fascinating. Anything he writes is worth reading. Well, I opened the paper in July 2005, just after the bombings in London. Heaven knows how we will rekindle our religion, but I believe we must. What would you think if you saw that? And you knew knew who who had written it. Heaven knows how we will rekindle our religion, but I believe we must. He doesn't have a religion. He starts out, and in the first paragraph he says, I am a hard-shelled materialist myself. He's quite explicit. And then he goes on, he says, the decline of Christianity, not just in Britain, but right across Europe, stands out as one of the most remarkable phenomena of our times. And then later, near the end, I'm just reading you these few, few sentences from a fascinating article. He says, It is not the spread of such mumbo-jumbo. The context is, of course, he's talking about Islam on one hand, and then on the other hand, he's talking about the other alternative uh, religion that people are looking to, which we would call New Age. It's actually the old uh, Eastern Indian Hindu concepts, basically, all their categories. It is not the spread of such mumbo-jumbo that concerns me half so much, here we go, as the moral vacuum our de-Christianization has created. And if it weren't pathetic, we would laugh at the next sentence. I do not deny that sermons are sometimes dull and that British congregations often sing out of tune. But if nothing else, a weekly dose of Christian doctrine will help to provide an ethical framework for your life. And here comes the tragic conclusion, in a sense, and I certainly do not know where else you are going to get one. Now, now these are, are quite remarkable uh, statements, are they not? Um, atheists who, seeing the moral decline, etc., the moral vacuum, as he says, and who wistfully look back and say, if only we could have that again, in, in, one, in one way or another. Though, of course, they're not asking for that in quite such an explicit sense. As I say, it's more wistfulness. Now, the other thing which fascinates me is that when you set alongside this, this wistfulness, the other very striking feature of our experience here, especially in in, uh, the United Kingdom, but also in the United States, the fierce invective against all religious heritage, not just Christian heritage, but all religious heritage, on the part of the new atheists. So here you have, on the one hand, the wistfuls, if I can call them that. And here you have the wreckers. That's how you feel when you hear them speaking. They just want to wreck anything to do with our Christian or religious heritage. Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, etc., etc. They are far from convinced about our need for a religious recovery. They view it, any religious Um, influence as the worst thing that has happened to the evolving human race. Now, I think we must be very careful here, and I actually wrote a little comment on this, which you can see on our website. The website is christianheritage.org.uk, so very simple. And uh, I wrote an article, a little comment, not an article, just saying, agreeing and disagreeing with Dawkins. 
Because if you think about it for a moment, you realise that, of course, as those who believe that God's word is true, we would agree with what uh, they are saying in relation to the um, manifestly uh, terrible influences on all societies through history, going right back to the beginning, as a result of false religion, what the Bible calls idolatry. Now, this immediately throws us into an, an, an uncomfortable position because then we are accepting ourselves from all the others, correct? And that's a no-no. You don't do that. That is exactly what the Bible does. And we have to have the courage to live with that. So I try to uh, identify myself with that protest against some of the things, and I'll mention uh, several as we go through, which in relation to other cultures have been really terrible for the human race. Now, set over against that, we would then argue, but you have neglected one thing, and in your analysis of the influences of, uh, of Christianity, you have failed to see that actually we have what we have, whatever light we have in the darkness of human uh, uh, wickedness and sin, etc. We have what we have solely as a result of what God has given us through his word and through those who received that word. And that's where Psalm 44, you see, comes in. It was not by their hand. It was because of you, Lord. So we have to both agree and disagree with, with Dawkins. And the, the reason, I think, we come uh, as a conclusion to that to this sense that here is, a, there here is a contradiction within the society which surrounds us. And it, in, it, in itself, this is so revealing that you have this wistfulness on the one side, you have the, the wrecking uh, on the other, and it shows, as Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Why? Well, because... What they have as a basis, since they have rejected the Christian worldview, is nothing. That's why I, I quoted from those other articles. The moral and intellectual and spiritual vacuum. The most significant thing, says Niall Ferguson, that has happened in Europe. Now, when I was asked to speak, I was um, given the title and then asked if I would choose a, a passage. And I chose Psalm 44 very deliberately and what I'm going to say next, I think, is as important as anything I'm going to say, because how we actually approach this subject is as important as anything else. Namely, if we come with any sense of triumphalism or nostalgia, we have missed the whole point. If we look back and say, oh, look at our troop. Our team was so wonderful. They, they, they never put a foot wrong. Look at all the wonderful things that they accomplished. If that is the approach that we have, we really are, are not doing anything very productive tonight. And it seems to me Psalm 44 reminds us of the fact that there really is the possibility of God coming in and redeeming not just individuals like you and me, but whole societies. He chose a whole people. And in his graciousness, he has done that to many uh, people in history. But preeminently, I would argue to those of us who have this particular heritage going back to the Reformation in particular. And that's what I will draw attention to as we go through. 
So the two things that I'm concerned about is any sense of pride as if somehow we are better because we are from this country, this nation, this race, etc., etc. That is an abomination. And also, too, at the same time, a sense of sadness. Who can look back and sense for all of his weaknesses and there never was a golden age and the church was always inadequate in all kinds of ways and there were the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies and the foolish mistakes, etc., etc. And yet when you put all of that together and you say you look back at this heritage where the Bible was put in the churches throughout this country towards the end of the 1530s because of the heroic work of somebody like William Tyndale who was finally uh, arrested in Belgium and imprisoned and had a terrible last 18 months, freezing conditions. And we know this because he wrote a letter about it from that prison, which was only discovered in the 19th century quite recently in a Belgian archive. And because of the courage of our forefathers and what they did, and preeminently because they obeyed God's word, they trusted in him, God did this. And so that wonderful psalm, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told you us what you did in their days, in days long ago. And so we see that, we see it, and then we see what has happened. It's cause for great sadness, is it not? So that just to sort of set the, the, the context. So with those words of introduction, let's now move on. And I've deliberately chosen to um, focus not even just on one person or a small group of people who were Christians who were influenced, influential into our heritage, but to choose a building. Now, I know this is going to sound strange. Picture your, your uh, dilemma trying to explain to someone a huge panorama from the top of a mountain. What I'm going to try to do is single out a section and just describe it, and then hopefully by doing that, give, an ex- give you an idea how it seems to me the heritage, this principle, works through how Christianity has influenced our history. So that's what I'm going to be doing, and I'm choosing the little building, totally insignificant, hardly anyone notices it in Cambridge, it's Sydney Sussex College Chapel. Now we set out from the uh, Round Church, and we moved to cross to St John's College, and there on the wall on the outside is the statue of Thomas Clarkson. Thomas Clarkson, chain in his hands, abolition of slavery. He came up as a young student and he saw that there was this competition, essay competition on slavery. It was, the title was something like, it was all in Latin. Um, is it ever right for one person to own another person? You own a house, you own a bicycle. Um, is it right to own another person? How about that? It was an essay title set by uh, uh, the vice-chancellor And he wrote an essay, and that was the beginning of his involvement. Thomas Clarkson standing, in a sense, behind Wilberforce. And then they were brought together. Wilberforce, we then move into the chapel, and there is the statue of Wilberforce, because they just missed each other as students. Wilberforce had just left when Clarkson arrived. And I always stand there and I say, after explaining all of this, this extraordinary um, campaign, that there was never any moral crusade in all history. It can be compared with that. And I say, listen, how many of us, 11, 12 of us in the, in the group, 
It was kind of like us taking on the multinational corporations. And they did it. And they did it because of their Christian faith. And we move on, we go right around through the colleges and then down past the Senate House, etc., etc., King's College, go through the uh, Cavendish Laboratory, talk about James Clark Maxwell, this young Christian scientist who deliberately put over the main entrance of, of the, uh, the laboratory. This is back in, in 1874, uh, shortly before he died, sadly, at the age of 47. And he put up there the words of Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are carefully considered. Exquisite. They are carefully considered by all who take delight in them. It's amazing. And then we finally come around. I'm keeping people going because some of them are flagging. And I say we're going to come to the American connection. And I explain that of the people who went out, the graduates who went out to uh, to, uh, the New new World, uh, between 1820... uh, 1620 and, and 1640, uh, 60%, five, sorry, five-sixths of the graduates, there were only 130 graduates in that period, five-sixths were from Cambridge. And so we swing around and we come into this little chapel. So here we are, totally insignificant. A plaque just before you go in, in the anti-chapel, records the fact that uh, Cromwell's head was buried there. So of course that generates a great deal of interest. How come his head is there? Where is the body? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So we talk about that. Um, Oliver Cromwell was a student in 1616. This was a little college founded in 1596, um, just seven years before Elizabeth's death. And we come in, and I say this to everyone. This building is unique in Cambridge and Oxford. Now, all the colleges, as you know, have chapels, except for two or three. Uh, And then I asked them, now, can you tell me why? So they all started looking at the furniture. And I say, no, look, it's not the furniture. It's not the windows, not the stained glass, not the the pews, et cetera, et cetera. This building is unique. And that is true. And they finally guess, especially if it's a nice, bright day, as I was coming up in the train today, the sun was shining beautifully, And I say, look at the light, look at the light, and then someone will get it straight away. The light is coming in in the afternoon, because we're usually going around about 3 o'clock, 3.30, and it's coming in the west window. So clearly, the altar's down there. At the end, it's facing south, south, north. This was a dramatic statement by those who built this chapel that was, as it were, a declaration of the genius of the Reformation vis-a-vis the influence into the whole of culture. And then I tried to unpack that statement. How did it work? Now, you see, I mean, imagine you're in that day to have a building of a chapel, which is north-south axis rather than east-west, you see, would be totally shocking. The, The parallel I use, the analogy is, imagine the queen one day announcing that she's not going to live in Buckingham Palace, she's going to have a big tent across the road in the park, you know. I mean, unheard of. You don't do that kind of thing. And the, and the queen was worried. By now she was worried. But she allowed it. And the, to show that it really was deliberate, Emmanuel, which was founded just 12 years before, 1584, uh, by another of Queen Elizabeth's advisors, um, they also had a north-south axis. 
So it was quite deliberate. Both of them were Puritan colleges. Both of them were making a deliberate statement. And the statement ran simply like this. It was the follow-on from the principle of sola scriptura, which we all prize here tonight, I'm sure. And this had been hammered out by the reformers on the way back through the market square. We've just gone past the church, uh, which the first church in which the first, sorry, the first sermon was preached in this church, St. Edward's, uh, announcing the Reformation, Christmas Eve, 1525. Robert Barnes, another of the many who were burned, along with Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, etc. So make this point that here, uh, we've, we've now come into this, this little chapel, and the Puritans are now in, uh, attempting to apply this principle, the sola scriptura, into the whole of their experience. And then I drew out the fact that what they are actually saying is this. When you read the New Testament, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, the New Testament letters, you do not see any instructions to build a chapel, to build a church, any building that is a religious building. They met in people's homes. And so what they're saying is the only reason why we build it east, west, is because there is a tradition which has come from the church with the pope at the head. That whole principle is something which we are challenging. We're saying over that is an uh, authority, the word of God, for the whole of what we do in the church. And that led on into many reforms within the church itself. Then I make the point that actually... The radicalness of this is seen in another challenge, namely that they were saying this principle of the word of God being over the whole of life was a challenge to the authority of the state also. So you have the church and its tradition. You have the state and the king. Aha, here comes Cromwell, do you see? And it was in 1629 that uh, John Winthrop met with 11 friends and that's when they uh, decided to get the, they met in Cambridge, they decided to get the Massachusetts Bay Charter. They then went to the States and they founded New England, uh, Massachusetts Bay. Now the principle, do you see, is very simple. Very, very profound. Because they were arguing that we had made a mistake through history because we had not listened to the word of God. And we were seeking our, our authority within the church, in the church authority, tradition, the papacy, whatever. And in the state, we were looking to the king. Now, it's not that they were against authority on either grounds, but they were saying the word of God is the authority, the final authority. That is the background to both Emmanuel College and to, um, uh, to uh, Sydney Sussex. And the only church that, uh, the, of the two that survives is um, Sydney Sussex because Emmanuel then changed it and got a, an east-west um, chapel the next century. So here is this principle which they are standing by and mentioning about the Puritans then leads on to the Pilgrim Fathers, 1620. So the Pilgrim Fathers went out to the state. 1630, Winthrop and his friends took about 1,700 people out as well. 
And that was the beginning of what we today call the United States. You see why I say the American connection. What was it founded on? Now, I'm not saying universally in the colonies, but this aspect of it was very clearly, and, and Winthrop was actually called, he was nicknamed, the Moses of New England. Now, his speech to the, to the people as they, before they set out to go across the, the ocean is just the most wonderful, they, 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 people describe it as the most wonderful piece of literature in English from that whole era in terms of the American settlement. Just magnificent. Here were Christians standing on the authority of the word of God and saying, we are going to attempt this new experiment, the influence. Now, the thing is made really dramatic. I hope you, you're with me in terms of the, the principle here. The word of God, you look in it, it doesn't tell you to build a chapel or a church in any way, in, in any direction. And then they then challenge that principle. And they challenge it on the basis of the authority of the word of God. The thing is made really dramatic because at that very time, as a result of this shift, what went on was we had the Civil War shortly afterwards, 1642. And that's when Cromwell came to greatness. As a result of that, we managed to um, change the whole status of the monarchy with relation to, to uh, Parliament. And through that, we obtained our liberties. That's a very complicated story, of course. But that was the basis upon which we came to our political uh, freedoms in due course. At the same time, Charles's nephew, Louis XIV, who was a young boy at the time, um, he had set himself, by the time he came to authority, uh, he took over the reins, of, he became king at the age of five, 1643, just as the Civil War was opening. And then he took over when he was about 23. And you remember the famous statement that he made, l'état c'est moi, the state, it's me. So here you have this dramatic contrast, with just the channel between it, and France, which is the largest country in Europe at the time. And they then set themselves deliberately in the opposite direction. And what you see opening up then in French history is a story, an influence, of an opposite idea. That is that authority does rest in the king. And you have the whole idea of the divine right of kings. And so you have something which unfolds on one side of the channel, which is completely different from what unfolds on the other. Now, I'm simplifying, you realize. But actually, what you can see happening is, as a result of that change in France, the rejection of the Huguenots, Puritans in France, so to speak, what you see is the gradual decline of France, not only a decline economically, socially, tremendous injustices, and finally, the injustices become so serious that in 1789 you have the French Revolution. And what follows from the French Revolution? Napoleon. Despotism. So you start with despotism with Louis, and however enlightened and sincere he may have been in his own mind, that is the end of the story. And what do you find on the other side of the channel as a result of those who committed themselves to the authority of the word of God over both the church and the state? What do you find? You find the beginnings. For all of its mistakes, you find the beginnings of a parliamentary democracy 
which brings greater and greater freedom to the people within it. I find this quite remarkable. Now, add to this one other thing. If you ask, well, what was Louis doing at the end of his life? He had established a principle of imperialism. He wanted to have more territory, and so he invaded Holland. And you all know the story there. With great hardship, they managed to survive. And then England came in to, protect, to defend the, uh, the Dutch st- uh, state. And there you have the Duke of Marlborough. And it is very costly to England to do this. And finally, you have the Battle you know, of Blenheim, Ramillies, etc. We, we, we know these names. This was what was going on, was that England was becoming a champion of liberty, do you see, in Europe? And then what happened next? Well, then there was Napoleon, as I said, 100 years later. Same story. Duke of Wellington. 1815, Battle of Waterloo. A champion of liberty. And then what happens next? Well, then Germany comes on the scene. And this funny little uh, island becomes again a champion, a, a, um, a means of um, drawing together a force which will stand against this, this enormous power of Nazi Germany. Now, is it, does it, doesn't it move you to hear this? Talk about the Christian influence in history. I'm just using a small little illustration, starting with this building, Sydney Sussex Chapel, and showing you how the outworking of these Christian commitments, of course, with the blood, sweat, and toil, and often, in the case of the reformers, actual death, in order to live by that principle. What a remarkable heritage. And then you could say, in relation to the Cold War and communism, which is the next big step, you can say, in a way, it was America and England once again. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm only too aware of all the complexities. Okay, But simplifying it down, who was standing against this monstrous power? The ideology of Marxism. It was the country developed largely in terms of its basic principles by the people who came out of Cambridge and who went across the, 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 the Atlantic to found New England and the other other nations, the, the other um, states in, in the US. I just find this a very, very moving story. Now, with that in mind, I just want to read you from John Roberts. He's another of these really remarkable historians who have encapsulated so well the Christian dimension, not intending to draw attention to it in any way. That's not their interest. They're simply describing what happened. And uh, I don't know if you remember seeing the documentary series that he made called The Triumph of the West. Um, it came out as a, as, a, as a book also, published by the BBC. It's one of the finest histories you can read. If you want to read something, it's now out of print, unfortunately, but you can get a hold of it. But um, not far into the book, he has these four quotes, which I'm going to read to you one, from one section, um, drawing attention to the fact that it was Christianity which lies behind the Western civilization, the West, as we call it. And very dramatically and movingly, he starts the documentary, not the book, the documentary, you see him standing in the Alps, and he points east, uh, southeast towards the Danube, 
north towards the Rhine, and then west towards the Rhone. And he says, you know, this is the center of Europe. And the very next shot is of him in um, Monte Cassino, the Benedictine monastery, uh, south of Rome, which was so much uh, um, a scene of, um, of conflict you know, during the Second World War as the troops uh, came north. And, um, and then he says, this is where Europe began. So he's standing in the middle of a monastery way back, you know, founded uh, in the 6th century, and he says, this is where Europe began. L- listen to these, these statements of his. At the deepest level, it is in its Christian nature that the explanation of medieval society in shaping the future must lie. So he's talking about medieval societies, right? And he says it's, in, it's at its deepest level, it's Christian nature that the explanation of why this society became so powerful, that's where he mentioned the triumph of the West. And then he has three explanations. It can be seen, for instance, in the fact that the Christian worldview of the Middle Ages was integrated and rational. Now, he refers, of course, to the Greek antecedents, and that's reasonable to do so, of course. But what he is getting, paying, uh, drawing attention to is that because God had revealed his, himself to human beings in Scripture and in, in, uh, in Christ preeminently, what we were given as human beings was an integrated and understandable view of the whole of reality. Not because we were clever, but because God, who is infinite, has actually explained all this to us. The beginning, the middle, the end. What is it all about? What lies behind the, the things which are seen in the invisible world? And so on. Thirdly, furthermore, this was an active, questing, striving religious culture. Active, questing, Striving, I love those words. Its search to change the world and its self-criticism ensured that medieval civilization never lost the capacity for self-renewal. Being self-critical, self-renewal. You think of Francis of Assisi, etc. Though that renewal was only achieved in the Reformation. Could it be clearer? And then finally... At the heart of Christianity lay always the concept of the supreme, infinite value of the individual soul. Now, I have never seen anyone write those words. The supreme, infinite value. I don't find that in Christian theology. That is true. Not because we are infinite, but because God, being infinite has given us an infinite value because we are made in his image. And so he goes on. This was the taproot of respect for the individual in the here and now. And its importance can easily be sensed by considering the absence in other great cultures. Please hear me because we are living in a culture which is moving in the opposite direction. And here is John Roberts saying the most um, politically incorrect statement you could imagine. And so he says, it's importance, this importance of this concept of the supreme infinite value of the individual because we're created in the image of God. This can be sensed when you look across and you see 
So he says, by considering the absence in other great cultures, Islam, Hindu India, he doesn't just say India, Hindu India, China. In none of them was the safeguarding of individual rights to be given much attention until the coming of Western ideas. Now, I am not trying to blow the trumpet of the West or of whites or, or North v. South, etc., etc. That is the last thing we have in mind. I'm just trying to draw attention to someone, one of the greatest historians of the last century, saying, if you want to understand where our cult civilization comes from, go back to its Christian roots. Not to deny that there weren't other things influencing, but that is where the true nature is, is, is best seen. That's very striking. I'm glad to say the theme that I've just described um, of an, an awareness that if we hadn't had a Christian influence, we wouldn't be where we are right now in terms of the precious things which we still enjoy, in terms of the value of the individual, freedom, political freedom, etc., etc., but this story is continuing, and I've drawn attention to a couple of books. Let me mention uh, David Bentley Hart just came out this year, and it's called Atheist Delusions. And a good thing about this, it's, a, it's an excellent book, um, is that he is now looking primarily in the very early parts of the church's life. So he's reaching way back behind the Reformation you see and going right back to the beginning, into the time when the church was very beleaguered, persecuted, people were being, being uh, uh, martyred uh, frequently throughout those centuries. And analyzing that, listen to what he says. In short, the rise of Christianity produced consequences so immense that it can almost be said to have begun the world anew. He explains, it, to in other words, to have invented the human, to have bequeathed us our most basic concept of nature, to have determined our vision of the cosmos and our place in it, and to have shaped all of us to one degree or another in the deepest reaches of consciousness. Do you see what he's saying? Our title is The Christian Influence on History, and he's saying, but because of what the church was and because of its convictions, every one of us now sees reality differently. It sees reality, as he says, almost as if the world was made anew. And he explains why. The ethical presuppositions intrinsic to modernity, so now he's talking about today, and all this talk about human rights, etc., etc., and he says... The ethical presuppositions of those things are haunting echoes of Christian moral theology. Haunting echoes. They don't believe it, but it's an echo, nevertheless. Even the most ardent secularists among us generally cling to the notions of, here we go, human rights, economic and social justice, Providence for the indigent, in other words, helping the poor. Legal equality, everyone, you know, unbiased, equal before the law. Or basic human dignity, 
that pre-Christian Western culture would have found not so much foolish as unintelligible. Think about that. So he's saying these things which we take for granted today were created because the, the culture at the time, just think of the Roman state, the Roman state and the Greek state before it, were the great slave states in history. They depended entirely on slavery. And so he says this is what came to us out of that. It is simply the case that we distant children of the pagans would not be able to believe in any of these things. They would never have occurred to us had our ancestors not believed that God is love, that charity is the foundation of all virtues, that to fail to feed the hungry or care for the suffering is to sin against Christ and that Christ laid down his life for the least of his brethren. Maybe I should just stop at that point. I mean, it is just so magnificent, isn't it? Now, this is well written, but that's not the point. The point is, we have all of these treasures out of the Christian influence, which came down to us through ordinary human beings like us who took God at his word and lived and were faithful and made witness. Now, I'm going to move on. Why I have chosen this um, segment of a large panorama, the whole of Christian history, um, is because I think it also helps us to see some important principles. And I just want very, as quickly as I can, to uh, outline those and then draw to a close. And then I hope we can have um, plenty of time for discussion. My, uh, my background, as uh, uh, John was mentioning, is in Labrie, and um, if I had to choose between lecturing and discussion, I would always choose discussion, because then you're having an exchange of minds, and you're hearing each other, and so on. So um, I will go on reluctantly. And, uh, but here we go. The four principles. The first is that ideas are central in the formation and character of all societies. I'll read that again. Ideas, so it's not the geography, it's not where you are, it's not how many raw materials you have, it's not how bright the people are, etc., etc., etc. Ideas are central in the formation and character of all societies. Now, I've already mentioned, you know, I, I hope you've sensed this, you know, talking about on the one side of the channel, somebody like Oliver Cromwell and all those who stood with him challenging the king. And then Louis XIV on the other side of the channel adopting the very other of the idea that no, the king really is the state. Later, the state is me. Okay. So you see the influence of these two ideas? <clears throat> Made it. Where does India come from? Where does China come from? Where does Japan come from? Etc. Do you see? Ideas. And it's the same with us as individuals. As a man thinketh, so is he. Now that's the principle. It's, it's nothing complicated. Uh, let me just give you another example. One of the things which is so striking um, is how many um, non-Christians 
admit quite openly that science, modern science, would not have occurred outside of a Christian framework. Now just think about that. Now you, you could be taken for a ride on a number of things in this, in this field, for example, the Muslims and then the Chinese and so on and so forth. And one is not denying for one moment that there were many great discoveries made and advances made technologically, China, gunpowder, great ships, etc., etc. But something impeded the development of their, quote, science, so that they could not advance. And it was only when a thoroughly Christian view of reality was adopted, a biblical view of reality was adopted, that you had the great breakthrough. As I say, this is generally recognized. Rodney Stark, that's another of the books. It's called... um, Rodney Stark's first book was, uh, not the first book that he ever wrote, but on this theme, was uh, For the Glory of God. I do recommend, I don't agree with him, and you must be alert as you read these things. He's coming from a different perspective than us. Uh, But the second book is called um, The Victory of Reason. And in The Victory of Reason, he looks very specifically at the things which were changing technically in Europe as a result of the different attitude that Christians had to the real world, etc. But in relation to science, Rodney Stark, he's got a whole chapter in the first book, um, For the Glory of God, he has a whole chapter on slavery and a whole chapter on science. And he goes as far as to say this. Now, I, I don't think I would venture to, but I understand what he's getting at. He says, all pre-modern science was not really science. And all he is trying to say by that, you remember I read that quote from Roberts about a rational, coherent view of reality? All he's saying is that while the, the, the discoveries made previously were remarkable and one, one admires them, they did not have a coherent framework. It goes back to uh, James Clark Maxwell in Psalm 111 too. If you don't have a God, great are the works of the Lord, if you don't have that framework, if there isn't a personal universe where there is a God who is rational, who who thinks, who who actually communicates in categories, this is right, this is wrong, etc., etc., rational, and then has made a rational universe with us as rational, if you don't have that framework, it's kind of like trial and error, which is not bad. I mean, I do that quite a bit when I'm doing carpentry, you know. But... Actually, if you want to have a coherent system, you've got to go to the Bible. Do you you see his point? That's what he means. Remarkable. Now, you see, as part of that, just think of how strenuously the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, deals with idolatry. The worst mistake you can make is to go wrong on this. That's why I said I agreed with Dawkins. False religion does lie at the center of human misery, right from the very beginning, from Genesis 3 and from Adam and Eve. Correct? Yeah. And so when we say ideas stand at the center of all societies, 
Here is the way uh, Michael Novak puts it. The first of all moral obligations, he says, is to think clearly. This is a Catholic, incidentally. Societies are not like the weather, merely given, since human beings are responsible for their form. Social forms are constructs of the human spirit. That's what I mean by ideas. You see that it's what you think, what you value, how you see other people, etc., etc., that actually forms the society. And that's why we are in such a disastrous position. The ideas we have adopted have undermined all our values. That's the moral vacuum that we were talking about earlier. So that's the first point. The second is, to the degree to which a society receives and embodies the biblical worldview, to that extent it enjoys the fruits of the gospel. The degree to which a society receives and embodies the gospel, to that extent a society will enjoy the fruits of the gospel. Now I say this largely, though not only because of Roman Catholicism. And here it's been in the news very recently. It's a very live issue to my mind and something which we should be alert to and aware of. But why I don't try to deal, want to deal with it now is because we have, as Protestants, made a mistake in thinking that all good things began in 1517 with Luther and the 95 Theses as if there was nothing before that. And I'm trying to make the point that even when it was in its framework in terms of its theology of salvation, justification, the authority of the Word of God, when it was mistaken because it approximated to the Word of God, it actually was dealing with that, to that degree it had a benefit from it. And so a lot of... um, of, uh, um, Rodney Stark's book, The Victory of Reason, is tracing those things. And uh, the monks were largely influential in so many of the technical changes that came about. So they were thinking, and you say, well, well, where does that come from? Well, uh, Jesus did say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so they were thinking about the problems. They didn't have lots of slave labor like the Romans did. And so they developed all kinds of technical things. For example, water mills, windmills. Uh, they developed um, uh, the, the possibility of steering ships in a way which was completely novel, and so that revolutionized travel. And then they developed the, uh, the girdle, the, uh, the harness that goes around a horse, horse's neck. And so for the first time, they were able to have horsepower. You know, and all these things seem trivial to us, and he goes on and on and on. He points out that actually capitalism came out of the rational, the reasonable, the thinking, the, the, the uh, careful, uh, the, um, uh, the thrifty, the hardworking mindset which had already developed within the monasteries in Europe. So this, of course, puts Weber well in the shade. But you see the, the point. He's saying they were thinking and they were changing and many benefits came out of that. And hence, that statement, the quotes that I gave you from John Roberts. He's not talking of post-Luther. He's talking about the medieval society which was developing these things. So already by the time you come to the Reformation, the pieces are all in place for the West to surpass any other culture in every sense. 
I mean in terms of the benefits to us. Not saying that it was all benefit, but relative. It was extraordinary. And that's why he wrote the book, The Triumph of the West. Now I'm, I'm running out of time. I just wanted to make the point that we mustn't think that those who have a wrong theological frame in some way or other, I think, for example, this applies to Protestant Africa. I know this sounds a harsh thing to say, but I think because the missionaries went out with a, a, um, a very limited view of the gospel, which didn't engage as Christian Institute is doing so well, helping Christians to know what it is to become part of the culture in the sense of not just preaching the gospel, vital as that is, but of actually engaging, of developing a Christian mind, etc. Because that wasn't the case, even though there were all these missionary schools all over Africa, what you have is a church which, despite its numbers, has not been able to affect Africa very much. So this principle doesn't apply only to Rome, but I'm just saying, as this is a big subject in terms of our Christian heritage, we must be clear about it. I'll say it again. The degree to which a society receives and embodies the biblical worldview, to that extent it enjoys the fruits of the gospel. Third and fourth. However, history within a fallen world is never neat and tidy. And so it's an obvious thing to say. What I'm trying to get at here is that because it's a fallen world, the ball, the rugby ball, bouncing down the field doesn't bounce evenly and you might get caught. It's the principle of good people suddenly getting cancer. People who love the Lord, if they lose a loved one, etc., etc. Or there's famine, or there's a huge industrial upheaval, whatever. And I say this because it, speaking along this line of the importance of Christianity practically in the culture, the influence into the culture, and the benefits of that, we mustn't end up with this idea, well, now we all believe in God, and we accept the Bible, and we believe in Jesus Christ, and everything's going to work out okay and how society is going to be okay. Or just look historically. I mean, just think of all the things that could have been different. Oliver Cromwell died in 1658. Very young man, 59. Now, I'm not saying, you know, he was, he was a perfect individual by any means. He was a devout Christian. And Milton considered, Oliver Cromwell considered him our chief of men. And when you read him over against, say, as we were just watching last night, I think it was, Matt Fry's uh, new um, series on, um, on Frederick the Great and Prussia and Germany and Berlin, you say, wow, what a remarkable man. Oliver Cromwell, what a remarkable man. But, so here he is, and we have a commonwealth, and then he dies. And then what? And then I think what happened, I mean, just to put it simply, is the biggest U-turn in our history when the Stuarts were restored which we still suffer from, in my view. Excuse me, those of you who are royalists and, and uh, devoted like my father is to the Stuarts. But anyway, um, I'm just trying to show you, I'm going to take the Huguenots in France. I mean, it succeeded, the Puritans moved on, Sydney, Sussex, Emmanuel, etc., etc. Uh, and the Huguenots were doing the same thing in France, but what happened? Oh, you know, Henry IV was assassinated, Henry of Navarre, 1610. He'd made the Edict of Nantes to give Protestants an equal go, you know, equal share. 
uh, equal rights in France. And then he's suddenly assassinated in his carriage. Somebody stabs him. And then what? Well, bad things happen, you see. And so the Huguenots lose. And they end up trekking out to, well, they, they become refugees going to the States, to England, to, even to South Africa, etc., etc. Do you see what I'm getting at? Oh, the same was true for the Czechs. The Czechs, <coughs> the nobility, had chosen to go with the gospel, to go with the Bible, as over against Catholicism. And for this reason and that reason, the ball bouncing, amongst them, James I's policy, even though his daughter was married to Frederick, Elizabeth. So even though he's got a daughter there, he doesn't you know, lift a finger to go to the rescue and other things happen, etc. And so what happens is that the Czech nations then are overwhelmed at the Battle of the White Mountain in 1620 and they stayed Catholic ever after. The bow the way the ball bounces. So it's not, you see, I'm, I'm getting at it's not a simple, oh yeah, well, we all do this and then it's all okay. Any more than it is in our own personal life. Fourthly, and finally, Christian societies do not go on in a straight line. I mean, I think this is fairly obvious, isn't it? And why our, our meeting tonight, while it's glorious and I just have enjoyed so much just sharing with you some of the, the wonder, wonder of, of our heritage. Yet we are deeply sad when we think of how we lost it. And one of the things I'm doing more and more now is a little seminar called Rekindling the Vision, in which I try to trace how it was that we as a Christian culture lost our Christianity. What were we doing to contribute to that tragedy? And now today, then, surrounded as we are by this kind of culture, then what do we do to try to regain it? So... It's a, it's, a very, it's a very sad story, and it's there in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Deuteronomic warnings, be careful. When you come into the promised land and you become wealthy, be careful. What will you do? Ha, ah, you will follow another idea. And the ideas have consequences. And they turn to idolatry, and they were overwhelmed. And that's where we are today. Now, I, I mention that not to end on a note of pessimism. Far from it. It seems to me (coughs) that we have the greatest opportunity that we have ever had in the past um, 150 years. If we could stand up like Luther did, here I stand, I can do another. If we did that, on the basis, first of all, of what we know the gospel to be and all its riches, like we've been seeing in the affected hand, but also in terms of where the culture is. And here I come back to the wistfuls and the wreckers. The wreckers are not going to last very long, in my view, because they don't have any substance, and it's going to become more and more apparent. I don't know if you've watched the debates. When John Lennox debated with Christopher... uh, Hitchens, it seems to me Hitchens was left in the second round, if I can call it that, I'm simplifying, just spluttering. Well, why? Because there really is no basis. That's why the wistfuls are saying what they are saying. The moral vacuum, do you see? Well, it's an intellectual vacuum that lies behind that. And if we could, understanding where the culture is, understanding where the gospel is, if we could stand and 
what does it need? We need to pray for revival in this sense, that we would hear the message of the Word of God, understanding the history and understanding the culture, so not just waiting for some dramatic Holy Spirit work that's going to happen. It'll only happen through His work. That's why I took the the Psalm 44. It was not by their strength that they won the land. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. That is the truth. But we have for too long been disengaged, and that's why I'm so thankful to come up and speak here in an institute which is trying to be engaged. If we had, for many years now, been properly engaged intellectually and spiritually with the culture, it seems to me that we might have been in a better position to speak to this vacuum. And it was a vacuum like this that existed when the Reformation uh, burst in Europe. Many were crying out for something new. Lady Margaret Beaufort was founding two colleges in Cambridge because it was so serious and she wanted to do something about the plight of the church in Europe at that time. And so Christ College and St. John's College came into existence. There was a vacuum. And the reformers spoke meaningfully into that, the word of God. And we had the greatest revival that's ever been in history, namely the Reformation. The consequences of which I have tried to describe and which are flowing out even now. Now I'm going to close with one thing before we go for a time of discussion. And the last paragraph of this book is worth buying the book just to have it. Uh, Here is um, Rodney Stark coming to the end of this lovely book. And again, let me say carefully, if you read it, then remember he's coming from a different vantage point. I was uh, say, talking to John before, a title like this, The Victory of Reason, is not one that I would readily um, choose myself <laughs> in, in view of the whole history surrounding rationalism and so on. But the, the content is so stimulating and very relevant to all that we've been saying. But this is how he ends. This is the last paragraph. There are many reasons people embrace Christianity, including its capacity to sustain a deeply emotional and existentially satisfying faith. Amen. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. I mean, this is wonderful, isn't it? We have a saviour like that. So he goes on, that's me. But another significant factor is its appeal to reason and the fact that it is so inseparably linked to the rise of Western civilization. So you can see the benefits, and this is my comment, you can see the benefits historically. Freedom to travel, to open your mouth and be critical of the leader, etc., etc. And then he goes on, for many non-Europeans, becoming a Christian is intrinsic to becoming modern. Thus it is quite plausible. I mean, this I think is why so many Chinese, seeing what the alternative was, are much more open uh, to to the gospel. For many non-Europeans, becoming a Christian is intrinsic to becoming modern. Thus it is quite plausible that Christianity remains an essential element in the globalization of modernity. Consider this recent statement by one of China's leading scholars. And here's a long quote, but it's just precious. 
One of the things we were asked to look into was what accounted for the success, in fact, the preeminence of the West all over the world. We studied everything, everything we could from the historical, political, economic, cultural perspective. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West is so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. End of quote. Last words of the book, neither do I. Amen. Well, listen, uh, I'm very happy to try to field some questions, and I just wish, as I said earlier, that we had much more time for discussion. John, will you, will you chair this? Because I, I was told we have to end at 9.15, and I was hoping for about half an hour. There we go. Thank you for that very stimulating talk and the note of realism and challenge. And you've invited us to yeah. show that we have minds. So... <laughs> I'm waiting to hear evidence of that. So, comments, please. And I've please. got two questions. Two One questions. is, do you think there's a danger of uh, breeding cultural rice Christians, i.e. rice Christians, i.e. they're attracted to the Christian culture, but not to Christ? They fill up our churches for the wrong reasons. That's the first question. Is there and a danger of people attracted by our culture and our faith? And yeah. secondly, how do you associate democracy with Christianity, as Christianity is dying in our culture, do you think that democracy is maintainable? A Christianity democracy. Yeah, let, let me answer the first, second one first. Uh, um, it's so relevant today, uh, Chris, and that is that I think uh, the answer is quite simply no. And I think we are seeing democracy um, gradually eroded more and more, mm. often without being aware of what's going on, in fact. Um, it's little by little. And uh, the principle of the gospel that I've been trying to enunciate being fundamental to our benefits, um, amongst which political freedom, etc., etc., stability economically, all that, those things are not sustainable when you don't have it. Now, if I could make another comment, just quickly flip it over just on, on the other side, and that is how strange, therefore, that American foreign policy and before British foreign policy, but particularly American foreign policy, for a long time, going right back to Wilson, you know, and uh, just after the First World War, who came over and was seen by many people as a savior. Uh, that, uh, we are not seeing anything new. And his idea was that in the same way that we gained our liberty, so all other nations deserve to be given their liberty. And of course, it's, and Blair is into this very much, and, and one, one respects the idealism in it. You know, they long for freedom to be spread wider, for people to be delivered from poverty and despotism and so on and so forth. But as an idea, once you've analyzed it, it's just utter folly. You cannot take these fruits of the gospel uh, and then transpose them to another culture. And I think this has been... One of the reasons why in, in the uh, post-colonial era we have seen such devastation. So 
uh, nations have been given a wonderful constitution, and uh, in none of them, almost, I think I can say almost none of them, uh, throughout Africa has it survived. And that's pretty true elsewhere too. So I think the equation, Chris, is very tight. You know what I mean? That it cannot survive because it can only exist within that. And it's not ideal as if, you know, this is the best thing for all situations. And so in some situations I'd say, you know, Christians would be right to say, no, listen, democracy is not the solution here. And then work within another system to try to bring about a better, a better end. Yeah, I don't. On the first one, Chris, um, remind me again. Uh, well, just to say, yes, rice Christians. Yeah, thank you. I've got it. Yeah, in terms of, of that, I, I think that again just requires wisdom. One can never deny one's culture, one's interest in culture, um, and how one moves from the fact that one is bringing benefits, which are real benefits, and yet keeps the, the principle of the individual needing to come as a sinner to Christ and then be converted and then start to live in obedience to that, to that same master. That's a very complicated thing. But um, I think that's where I think we have to be much more clear that it isn't our culture, meaning Western culture, uh, Anglican, uh, Baptist, whatever the culture is. And as we go into these new environments, and the same is now true in this country, I say this carefully. In other words, if we're going to try to reach the culture, uh, Schaefer, you see, found tremendous ease in being able to communicate right across the board. Well, why? Well, because he was having people into his home, amongst other things, and they were just sitting around, and they had long hair on, you know, probably smoking marijuana or something, you know, down the hill, and so on. I mean, and, and yet he was open to them, and they were, they were, there was a discussion going on, and it was human, and the postmodern world is just craving for this. I mean, with all the virtualness surrounding them, and then the breaking up, the fragmenting of their own personal lives, who do they trust? Can you trust a politician? <laughs> you know, can I trust my family? And so on and so on. And so I think what I'm saying is we have to distinguish between us going as Anglicans to Africa or to China and then us going now as evangelicals, um, conservative evangelicals, um, etc., etc., do you follow me, into our own culture. And I think the courage that we need to have is that we can separate out these things. We don't have to do it the way it has always been done. Now, I'm not advocating you know, the breaking up of church and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that we have somehow to reach across into the other culture so they realize we're not bringing the culture they, and this money and all this kind of stuff. We can actually do something very different. I just had a letter from a friend, Amy Carmichael. He'd, just, he'd, he'd heard me talking about Amy Carmichael and he was one of our interns this summer, and he went back home and he read it. It's just been a lifesaver to him. Amy Carmichael went to India. She lived as an Indian. She wore a sari. She realized that baby girls were being um, uh, given and sold into cult prostitution in the south of India. This is around about 1900. If you haven't read any of her stuff, I do commend you to, to her. Um, and um, she 
she then, you know, lived as an Indian. There's no, there's no rice Christians in, in that. She just lived at their, in, their, in their culture. I think that's the only way we can finally avoid that. I mean, it's a huge subject, Chris, but that's where I'd go. You've given quite a few examples of how uh, our Christian heritage has had a positive impact mm. on our country. And as Christians, we can see that that is true because we know God and we, we can see that in our own lives. But how would you practically uh, explain that to non-Christians? Well, I think the, um, it's a matter of just reading more yourself and, and being more versed in, in the history. I was struck... Um, uh, I, I had a talk on Saturday and I was reading Neil, Neil, um, Neil Postman. He wrote a book in 1985, just after 1984, uh, the famous date of Orwell's 1984, and it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And, you know, he, again, he's one of these people analysing what's happened in the recent culture, especially with the media, etc. And uh, I was struck by this, that when he, he doesn't have any easy answers when he says, well, what can we do about this? That um, um, our political dis- uh, conversation is becoming more and more dis- trivial and sort of meaningless. <laughs> kind of like a comment on the present, uh, uh, very, very obviously. But um, he, Neil Postman then looks to education. And then in his, second, in his later book called Technopoly, 2004, 2005, I think it was. No, 2000. He then says, listen, history should be at the center of our educational renewal. Because if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. So when you want to persuade, when you have to persuade your friends, one of the things to do is just know more about the history. And if you ask, well, where did I? I didn't do history at, at, at uh, university. Didn't learn a thing at school. And I became interested because people were asking me questions which were difficult to answer, just like you're suggesting, Sam. And uh, I was one day in a bookstore and I saw something on Cromwell. I thought, oh, this guy keeps coming up in the question. He was a terrible man, they say. And I just pulled this, it's his speeches, you know, Carlyle's famous gathering of his speeches and letters. And I just opened it, you know, like then, wow, five minutes later, I said, hang on, I, I've been sold a dummy. This is not right. You know, there's be something, there's more to this story. And then I started to read, and then I got Antonio Fraser's biography, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just saying, there's no alternative. And, and the reason is because we have been fed a whole bunch of mythologies. I mean, he even uses the word lie. I mean, I could find it for you. <laughs> We have been fed lies, you know, like, uh, well, Christianity has just done nothing for anyone forever. You know, that sort of thing that Richard Dawkins is saying. Well, that isn't true. And so then, that's why I'm, I'm suggesting, you know, get a hold of these books. And even though you have to be discerning, and he's coming from a different position theologically. I don't know where he's coming from, to tell you the honest truth. But he's not coming out of an evangelical background, put it that way. But um, um, he's drawing together, and, and then David Bentley Hart, even more so. But the books are just rolling off the press now. It's wonderful. So we then, what we need to do is you, Sam, start a little group of uh, those who are reading with particular questions in mind, you know, like, uh, my friends tell me this. And, and it's part of, the, part of the, um, the postmodern, as they call it, culture, that no one can be right. 
you know, so to take a strong view, and actually in this seminar I was doing on Saturday, one of the girls who was there just actually got, had, was tearful at the end. And she said, you know, here I am, I've got my faith, and yet I'm doing this particular subject, and I'm getting this other view all the time. And you, Ronald, come in and you say, the story is like this. And so, you know, my first answer was, well, listen, this is not something which we're doing as Christians, which is strange. David Starkey, all the history, um, Simon Sharma, a whole series on you know, uh, English history. Uh, Niall Ferguson, um, history of uh, the empire, history of America. You know, the, well, well, if they can do it, why can't we do it? You know? And then at the end of the day, it becomes a question of truth. And someone, not you Sam necessarily, but someone out of your little group might end up being like a George Macaulay Trevelyan, Regis Professor of, of Cambridge uh, uh, of, uh, History. And I think it's one of the indictments on our lack of engagement in this area that the man who's professor of, as it were, uh, Puritan studies, 17th century studies, is a Catholic, and, and a very dear man. I heard him lecturing just on Thursday. And, on, uh, and in, in Reformation, another Catholic. And, you know, so, hang on, wait, wait. Well, oh. <laughs> you know, it's just pathetic. And so this is just like in many, many areas, and we need to say, hold it, we've been, been sold a dummy. It, did, it wasn't like that. Uh, and, and I often, you know, when we get into discussions like this, I keep saying to people, listen, you can easily be shoved into a corner or shoved down a hole because people can point out many weaknesses and mistakes in, in what we did. Think of slavery you know, and the Crusades, etc., etc., and, and worse. And we, I think, have got a wonderful answer as Christians if we could only see it, and that is that, A, the Bible is completely transparent about the brokenness, the sinfulness of the human race and of the church. So you read the letters in the New Testament, they're all saying, hey, you know, come on, straighten up, you shouldn't be doing this. So we don't have, and then finally, in relation to the postmodern, we should say yes. And we are perhaps preeminently the ones to say, now we see in a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 30. And then we shall see face to face. So we have a limited view, a limited knowledge, a limited understanding of all subjects, including ourselves. And we have to wait for that great day when Jesus comes again, and then we shall see as, you know, clearly. And so that is the postmodern lament. And then we say, aha, but you see, you take that view that we're so many different individuals and different cultures, Japan, China, India. How could you possibly... I said, ah, but God could. And he did, you see. That's where the Reformation came at the end. The Pope and Rome and St. Peter's Cathedral and all the rest, it amounts to nothing because God has spoken. And that, on the basis of that limited knowledge, but true knowledge we can then make judgments. And so the passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. He doesn't mean we are literally Christ. He says, because God has revealed to us through his spirit the word, the truth, which is supremely evidenced in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are able and we must judge all things. The spiritual person judges all things. So on the basis of this, 
we're, we're freed from the postmodern trap. The postmodern trap saying, God, this is awfully confusing. Which it is. You know, this is where we have to say, yeah, life is very complex and there aren't easy solutions. And our heroes have let us down. And over on the other side, our enemies show us nobility. So how do we sort this out? Well, there's only one way on the face of the word of God. But to do that, you've got to do some homework, you know, in terms of the historical details. You mentioned George Macaulay Trevelyan. I just happen to be reading him at the moment, and um, I was talking to John Byrne today as well about Hegel. He quotes Hegel saying... Hegel. He he corrected me on my pronunciation as well. (laughs) Thank you. Um, That he said that history is basically the story of the struggle for freedom. Yeah. And from everything that you've just said um, about our nation and the Christian influence in our nation being the country, really, that has stood up in that struggle over the centuries, um, do you think that in the future we will still be that nation um, standing up to, to fight that struggle for freedom? Or do you think that there is perhaps another nation which is showing itself to be able to do that <coughs> instead? I think only God knows, and, um, and we, we should be glad if the, the principle is maintained. You know, there are those who will stand um, steadfast and who will, by what they do, bring about a change in the world. We should be glad from wherever it comes. And many people think that China is, the Chinese church is rising in numbers and in influence. Uh, but what about ourselves? You know... Uh, there was a reformation and possibly there could be another one. You know, so it's open-ended, it seems to me. And um, I think we should be praying you know, that God would um, deliver people, deliver us, deliver people in the world. Um, and the only way to do that is for Christians to stand. And, and they may succeed. Like I said, you know, the ball doesn't bounce right for, for us necessarily. I mean, who knows what's going to happen to the Chinese church? Uh, somebody on Saturday was, you know, vehement that we're at the last day, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm not saying, well, maybe, and I, I, sometimes I think that. But uh, we have to be very careful not to say, we know the date. And then we must be very careful to say, it couldn't be here, because look what we've done. Well, it could be there, because look what's happening there. You know, we just have to be open. This is the way a Christian is every day in, in relation to life. And I think the church has got to be saying, listen, let's be faithful now, and perhaps. Thank you. We're running out of time. I wanted to ask one question. Yes, John. But I've refrained from doing that because of my neutrality. But I just want to say, I visit an awful lot of many Christian churches in this area of all kinds of persuasions, but the thing I never hear Hmm. from the pulpit is any encouragement of Christians to really engage in our culture today and to stand for culture. Now, I may, I may be unfortunate, I may be in the wrong places, but that's an overriding impression that I have. Would you like to comment on that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I, I have great uh, sympathy for the fact that we have been in this position um, for a long time. Um, And that is that the church has not been speaking out 
and I say for a long time, I say about 150 years. But the sympathy comes from the fact that with the best intentions earlier in the 18th century, especially in a little bit before that, this is going back to Wesley, the Wesleyan revival, Whitfield, etc. There was a strong reaction throughout Europe against intellectualism. It was called Protestant scholasticism. People were fighting each other about the details theologically on Minions and Calvinists. And, and then in addition to that, they had had wars, the wars, you know, 30 years war, the religious wars and so on. And people were just tired of all of that. And so here comes the point. There was a reaction. It was a renewal movement. A pi- it's called pietism. It was a lovely thing. And the people were saying, listen, we've got to stop all of that. We've got to get back to the Bible. We've got to read it. We've got to practice it. And they started little collegia pietatis, as they call them, little assemblies, what we would call a little house church, uh, house, house group, house group. And they would meet like that and encourage each other and confess their sins to each other and help each other and so on. And it was wonderful in its inception. But because of that reaction against the intellectual and against all the warring, a simple thing went wrong. And that was, I call it, the pietist hangover. And it was that they said, the heart is more important than the head, and my private experience is more important than the public, you see. And so the, the revivals were going on, the, the, what's called the Great Awakening, Whitfield's preaching, uh, Wesley's preaching in Whitfield to the tin miners in Cornwall. It's just wonderful. And then they go over to the States and it's even more wonderful, you know, and so on. But that little worm was eating away and in due course, it, over, it became the dominant voice. Why? Because at the very time when we most needed an intellectual and public engagement, because a monster had come up in Europe again, this time an intellectual monster. This is the Enlightenment, rationalism, you don't need God, Voltaire, Diderot, etc. Do you follow? And then the church was really stuck. This is after Wilberforce, around about 1859. The big tsunami hit us. The church was unprepared. This is where my sympathy is coming from. If you're not prepared, well, then what do you do? Well, you, you scramble. You, know, you just jump on the first life raft that comes along. And the life raft that came along was, well, let's do evangelism. Now, I'm not saying any against evangelism. Please, believe me, I pray for 10 Wesleys and 20 Whitfields. But the mistake had been made, not corrected. And then what happens is it's this term from psychology what's called sublimation. You're weak in this area. Oh, I'll do more of this. You know. I, won't, I won't take care of my homework, the little girl says or the little boy says. I'll just go out and I'll clean my room. You know, know, the kind of thing. And that sublimation became a principle. And so you have the big evangelists and everything becomes evangelism. And it's what I call one-legged evangelism. Meaning that if you look in the book of Acts, and this is coherent, consistent with the rest of Scripture, you look in the book of Acts and you see that there are two legs to evangelism. Namely, proclamation and persuasion. How many times you read, and they, they reason with them out of the scriptures, 
And they debated with them, they tried to convince them, they tried to persuade them, they debated with them. And you end up in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years having daily discussions. And so the word of God spread in the whole area. Do you get it? In other words, there is proclamation, the simple going out in whatever way, individually, corporately, and then there is persuasion. And we have lost that, you see. And because we have been weak in that area, here's my sympathy, because we've been weak and no one has come to our rescue, (laughs) we carry on with the tradition and that's why we have this situation which I lament and I think is devastating for us, where people think that the only thing you should do is evangelize. Seriously. I mean, a little bit else, but basically, that's it. And so long as we say that and and act like that in the churches, this this is the way you're going to reach the, the culture, we are going to be ineffective because that's not biblical. Jesus wasn't doing that all the time. Paul didn't do that all the time. He was an evangelist. And he spent some time, he was making tents. And anyway, he was having daily discussions. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a much bigger picture, and we have lost that. You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk.